All right. Well, I know we just prayed, but I really do want to open up in prayer because I think it's really important that we let God's Word come in and speak to us. Um, I mean, I am speaking, but it's more important that we start in foundation of God's Word. So I just want to invite the Lord in as we do go through His Word. So let's open up. Father, thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You, God, that we can rely on You and Your truth, and we don't have to figure things out based on what we appear or want to see as truth. So we ask You to come in and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, today we're going to pick up where Brian left off in the book of Luke, chapter 9. Um, we're coming to the section where Jesus uh, heals a demon-possessed boy. And I want to make a point up front um, about just believers in general, a lot of us can be guilty of either giving too much credit to the enemy, too much credit to Satan, or maybe even discounting the enemy's involvement and influence in our life. And I think it's good that we understand up front that we need Scripture and a balanced approach to that because we can be anywhere on that spectrum. C.S. Lewis actually had a good quote. Uh, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall in our thinking about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe in their existence, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And that's a salient warning as well. And I think we see that too in, in media now, in our technology age, and, and our access to a lot of things. We see this, even the worldly um, exposure to the enemy, to the devil, and this perception of, of how our lives and physical world cross. So I think it's good, knowing all that, that we try to use Scripture to give us this accurate picture of the work of the enemy in our lives. So today's message I'm kind of titling, uh, Victory Over Satan. Um, and we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 9, verse 37. <coughs> Excuse me, I guess I can't cough with that thing there. Whoa. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Verse 41, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. So a couple of things stand out from this passage. Uh, number one, a big point is the disciples couldn't drive out the impure spirit. And I think, wow, these are the disciples. These are the guys that are fully equipped. Um, so that's one major point. Um, and I'm assuming it's the disciples or just talking to the population in general or it could be both. This idea of having unbelief and being perverse is really key and important because that's what fuels the enemy in our lives. And I, I, we'll touch on that a little bit more. But the second point, which I want to lead into, is just that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. And that's kind of where I want to start off with. But there's, that's the first point, but there's actually three other points I want to talk, to, talk about. So 
What you and I believe about Satan and demonic spirits or unclean spirits, as Scripture calls them, you know, may or may not be based on this Scripture. So I want to go through these in a little methodical way. So the first point is Jesus has total authority over the demonic. That's the first point I want to get into. The second point is, is that we are not powerless to demonic forces. The third point is that we're in a spiritual war and we need to accept it and believe it. That's my third point. And my fourth point, which I'll wrap up today, is just talking about prayer and it's our foundation in order to conquer the enemy. So those are the four points I'm going to be going through. So let's, let's start off looking at Jesus' authority over Satan. And as we just read in verse 42, and Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, um, I kind of want to look back in the Old Testament just a little bit and give a little bit of um, background on this authority. So a good place to start is Job. If you go to chapter 1, verse 8, um, it further illustrates this understanding of God's authority. Um, so you can, uh, let's see, the Lord said to Satan, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright and a, fair, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now I want to get, jump to uh, Job chapter 2, verse 3. Um, this is kind of gives a little context where God's starting to you know, praise Job and uh, mention his character. He says in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Satan, have you, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. All right, so the point here is that it's kind of a weird interchange going on, but the key is, is that God is sovereign. God sets the parameters on what the forces of evil may do or may not do. So that's really key in this. Um, but this whole idea, and I admit I'm kind of confused by God's sovereignty because just from my own limited human thinking, it can almost appear that God advocates evil, but that's not true at all. Um, it's just this part of understanding God's sovereignty and having total authority. Um, another, another example I want to look at is we go to 1 Kings chapter 22. Um, here Ahab's involved in a battle with Syria and there's a confrontation with the prophet Micah who announces Ahab's death. So I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Um, just read a few verses in that. It says, verse 19, and he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. And one said on this manner, and another said on that matter, on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth and do so. So it's describing in these verses, uh, 19 through 22, you got Micah telling the, uh, the prophets telling of the scene before the Lord where God himself says, who will go to Ahab and go up to Ramoth Gilead and, and be destroyed? 
And Micah tells that evil spirits approach the throne. And then the spirits are saying, we will. And then God's asking, you know, how will you? And he says, we'll put a lying spirit in the tongue of Ahab's prophets, of Baal, and they'll convince him to go up there to where he'll be destroyed. And God says, go and have it accomplished what you desire. Now, this is an example, again, of God's sovereignty. Very strange. But this authority is something, it's, it's just hard to understand, that, that this is where God has authority and power. We must know, first of all, God can do no evil, even though evil is the context of what's happening here. He doesn't cause evil, but he rules over evil. Just like the demon-possessed boy in Luke 9, Satan meant for evil. See, God turned it around for good. That's part of what having this sovereignty is. He can, ha- he can set parameters, but he can also accomplish his will through it. Um, and speaking of that, turning it around for good, the story of uh, Joshua where his brothers sold him into slavery. If you go to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 there, if you guys pull that up, he says, um, you intended to harm me, when he's, he's talking to his family, Joseph is, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done the saving of many lives. So we know in Joseph, when he's referring to his brothers selling into slavery, Joseph isn't acknowledging that it's not evil. Joseph is actually saying this is evil. He knew it was wrong. But we learn that through Joseph's brothers, what was meant for evil, again, God meant it for good because it's his will, the fact that he's sovereign. Knowing God's sovereign allows us to trust him especially when things in our lives seem you know, overwhelmingly just impossible or hopeless. Um, that's where we can really stand on this idea or this fact that God is sovereign. He controls everything. So that is the silver lining in it. So there are other accounts of Jesus' authority over unclean spirits too. If we look at um, Luke chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1, you guys. Um, it describes Jesus going from village to village, and he's with his 12 disciples, and then there's also the women there um, who have been healed of evil spirits. So let's start looking at verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, pro- proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Mary Magdalene, which we know of Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of, their own, out of their own means. So these women are a testimony of the good news and the transformation that happens, where you've got a God who's sovereign, who can take evil that meant to destroy and turn it around for his good. So this transformation comes with power. It comes with change. And God wants power and transformation in our lives. That's why it's in the scripture. It's to demonstrate that this isn't just theory. God wants to bring healing and truth. So Christianity, you know, it's, it isn't just this theology. It isn't just a nice story. But it's a testimony of repentance, of change, of a changed life. Change that happens when Jesus gives us this victory over the enemy in our lives. And that's where we each kind of ask ourselves, when we read these, we're saying, you know, has, has following Jesus, you know, brought this kind of change in my life? Can I testify that this God is real? 
So the last example um, where, where God is uh, sovereign in control, I want to look at um, Luke 8 also. We're going to drop down to verse 26, you guys, in Luke chapter 8. It's beginning the account of Jesus again restoring a demon-possessed man. So in verse 26, it starts out saying, they sailed to the region of Gerasenes, however you say that, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot, he kept under guard. He had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and have them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. So we just looked at a few really powerful examples of just change. I mean, there are stories about evil and the enemies working, but ultimately there are stories about change, about restoration, um, and about Jesus' authority. That's my point, is that his authority gives this hope and this power of restoration. Um, it's just a great demonstration of his sovereign power. So that's the first point. I want to move on to the second point where we're going to talk about where we're not powerless to demonic forces, mostly because of that first point, because Jesus has total power and authority. I mean, everything's rooted in that. But I do want to look at where we're not powerless. If you turn, um, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 12 and 13. So if you guys want to pull that up. Verse 12 says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. You know, we a lot of times may not feel like heirs. We may not feel like children. We may not feel like we're living in this kingdom of light, but it doesn't change the truth. We are. This is the access, this is the light that, that Christ gave such a heavy, he paid such a cost for it, that just the fact that we don't feel it isn't enough for us to not walk out that truth that we know is true. 
we have been rescued from this dominion of darkness. And we may not feel like it. <clears throat> Let's look at 1 John 2.13, if you guys want to pull that up. John's writing, a, he's just writing a general letter to encourage believers. It's a broad letter. But it also evidences this further, this idea of the authority Jesus has. Um, this is the reason, too, as I'm going to read this, why we have to be in God's Word and why we have to be filling our minds with truth. We have to quiet the other voices in us, our own voices of negative, our own voices of the enemy, just telling us things opposite of the truth. So here's what John writes. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. So he's saying, here's the truth. We know the Father. We have access. We have this power that he has given us because of who we know. Again, because of this heir, being heirs. We know him. And is that, that's a huge assurance we have. We don't have to look at our inadequacies or our weaknesses. We look at who we know. It's because of him that we get this confidence. It's Christ's power in our life. So forget about our weaknesses. Forget about where we fall short. This is the truth that we have to hold on to, and this is why we need God's word and his truth, because it's easy to forget that. So the third point I want to talk about is um, that we are in a spiritual war, and we have to believe it. We have to accept it. You know, we might be living in denial of this. And a lot of times the business of our lives and our preoccupation with ourselves makes it very easy not to be aware of this. But that's why we need Scripture. That's why we need God's truth. So with that in mind, let's turn to James 4, 7. If you guys want to pull that up, it says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what's it, the key thing here is what's necessary is about submitting. A lot of this is hard if we're not going to submit because all we're doing is giving the enemy power in our lives. And that's why James is saying we need to submit. The devil isn't going to, he's not an idiot. He's not going to waste his time if we are submitted to God. If God's working through us, he's smart enough to know that eventually it's like this is, this is wasteful. He's got better things to do. So what it says is it's necessary to submit ourselves if we're going to resist temptation. Submitting ourselves to God, you know, it's our answer to a lot of problems, not just about the enemy in our lives and his inability to affect us, but submitting is basically the answer to everything. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, if you guys want to pull that up. It says... For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, this is something we, we have to believe because if we don't, the enemy's got plenty of things to tell us that aren't true. He'll tell us what to believe. 
And our flesh is going to tell us what to believe, something else contrary to this. Another verse I want to look at, if you guys want to pull up 1 Peter 5. We're going to look at verse 8 and 9. It says in Peter, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in faith. That's one of the most dangerous things with apathy is that we don't have this, this urgency in our life to be alert, you know, to realize that self-control, awareness of what God's doing in our lives from a positive span, stance and also the awareness of what the enemy's trying to do, it's that, it's that exact thing that brings about apathy. And apathy is the most, you know, horrible thing in our life because it just brings confusion and it's the opposite of everything that's true. Remember, this point is about being in a war. Can you imagine a soldier walking out and there's firing going on? It's like, yeah, I guess, you know, like, I guess there's people shooting at me. You know, whatever. You know, it's like, it wouldn't make sense. Because um, if we're not alert, we can pretend there's no war. And we do a lot of times. We'll pretend. We can give the enemy leverage. But we know it's foolish. We've got to be as alert to these spiritual threats going on in our life as we are to the physical threats. We're all quick to protect ourselves from physical threats. We feel the pain of that right away. Our flesh knows right away that's a, that physical hurts. That's painful. There's a consequence. But we've got to be the same way about the spiritual threats in our life. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You guys pull up verse 57. It says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, it all goes back to Jesus. It all goes back to the first point. It's God's authority. It's victory we have through Jesus, what he did on the cross. Satan's already defeated. He's not going to act like he's defeated, but everything he did on the cross brought already defeat, and that's the assurance we have. You guys want to look at 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. It says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you, and protect you from the evil one. So again, another assurance. God will give us the strength. He'll give us the protection. We might not feel like it. That's why we need God's word. We've got to be reminded of this because we're going to feel exactly the opposite of that being true. I mean, can you guys, everybody can say God has been faithful. I mean, you can at least think of a couple times. Yeah, like God, he's been faithful. He's always been faithful. So we have God's word and we have our testimony saying he's done these things. This is truth. We can rely on it. And he's been faithful over and over. So yeah, we can, I believe God's going to strengthen and protect me. Let's look at Matthew 18. If you guys want to pull up verse 18, we're going to look at verse 18 and 19. And this one is leading into the prayer, but it's a strong testimony of prayer. It says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. It's like, wow, now that's a promise. That's a huge promise. I mean, I can't even promise my kids half the things, but God can give us assurance that if we're in agreement, Again, it goes back to why we have to be in God's Word. We have to be in the Word of God for that. We have to feed ourselves with these truths. 
we have to make sure we're speaking truths because what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what goes in our heart. Let's look at John 8, 32. Speaking of truth, it says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Remember, the thing that Satan works in our life is deception, is untruth. That's, that's his tool. And if, when we have truth, it just takes away the power of the enemy in our life. The enemy can't make us deceived. I mean, we deceive ourselves. That's a choice we make. Sometimes we might feel like it because just the power of our own flesh. But that's still, that's our own decision. And that's an untruth that we can feed ourselves. So with all that, I just want to lead into the fourth point where prayer is our foundation if we're going to have victory in terms of conquering the enemy. It's kind of cool. I went through this short season in my life, well, really short, maybe a month, I don't know. But I was reading Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 about the armor of God. Um, let's go ahead and read that, um, starting off in verse 10, Ephesians 6. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. And with this in mind, be alert. Again, the alert comes up. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Yeah, this was really powerful. When I went through this, I was like doing this a month. And it was amazing, that truth. And it's such a, you know, physical vision too. It's not just a spiritual, but you actually see like the physical protection that happens in addition to the spiritual protection all in one thing. And to be honest, I don't know why I stopped praying it because it was so effective, but that's just, you know, we're foolish. We do that. But it was so effective. And I just challenge, if you guys just try it for a week, just read that Ephesians, like when you start the day, just try it for one week, and I guarantee you'll, you'll see amazing change, even for just a short period. Um, but remember how I mentioned earlier how we're, you know, we're just quick to be alert to our physical threats, but not to our spiritual. Uh, remember, you know, we're not necessarily as in tune with our spiritual threat. These verses just kind of give a real good illustration, like I mentioned, just of the physical, the spiritual protection that we need. It does, it's kind of does both. So we need to take prayer more seriously. All of us, talking to me, I need to take prayer way more seriously. Let's look at 1 John 5, if you guys want to pull up that, verse 14. It says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Again, it's a confirmation that we're not alone. This battle, we have resource. God wants to answer. 
He wants to be there. The confidence we have is that God responds to us. He represents us. We're not alone. And biggest thing is things happen when we pray. Things seriously happen. God intercedes for us. But you know, prayer, it's not a one-sided thing. It's not we ask, he gives, we ask, we give. It's not like a genie in a lamp kind of thing. We have to approach God with humility, and we also have to approach God with a willingness to repent, to change. Second Chronicles 7, if you guys want to pull that up, verse 14 illustrates this. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will, hear, and will heal their land. So God will answer, again, this came up before, if we submit. It's a two-way relationship. It's not a one-way. And when we're submitted, we're, we accept truth. We can take in truth. We're better prepared to stand against temptation. We see what the enemy's doing for what he's really doing, not for how we just deceive ourselves and allow ourselves to be blindsided. Let's turn to Matthew 26. You guys pull up verse 41. It says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So just the fact alone our flesh is weak is like we know we're not prepared for this war. So why would we not treat it like there's this lifeline we have that in order to even survive and walk through this thing, we got to first start with prayer, begin with prayer. It's the only way it's going to happen. Our best guard against the enemy is knowing we're weak and vulnerable, knowing we need that lifeline. In the last two verses I'm going to hit, let's look at Psalm 102.17, if you guys want to pull that up. It says, he will, respond, he will respond to the prayer of the destitute, and he will not despise their plea. Yeah. When we're desperate, God acts. Because God knows he's needed. It's easy to acknowledge his authority when we're at that, that state. And then the last verse, Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Now, in order to call on God in truth, that's where the submission happens. We can call on God with our own selfish motives, or we can reach out to him seeing things for where we're at. Like, I need God, Lord, I need to submit. And that's what's so key is calling on him in truth. So let's start experiencing victory in our lives and remind Satan that he's defeated because of what Christ did on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you, God, that the work is done. It's been completed. Lord, the war's been won. But Lord, we need you in these battles, Lord. We are ill-equipped, Father, to face the enemy. And you've designed it that way, Lord, where you are the one who gives us healing, victory, and power, and everything we need. And Lord, just take away that one lie, Lord, in our lives that we can do it on our own. It sounds good, and it's appealing, Father, but it's just not based on the truth of who you are and the relationship, Lord, that we need to have with you and a dependence on you. So Lord, allow us to understand this war we're in, God, and that we need you 
Father, and that it's real, and that there are casualties. And Lord, we just thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen.